0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Social Work Bubble podcast. I'm so glad that you're here. My name is Laura, and I have my BSW and MSW, and currently practice as a therapist in New York City in an outpatient mental health clinic. Before we get started, don't forget to like, comment, share, and follow this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. Um, Also, a little disclaimer as you all know, I live in New York City, and so if there are sounds, noises, it is out of my control, and I do not have the time or energy to record this when it is not loud, because I don't I don't think that's possible. <laughs> so let's dive in. Today, we're going to do a case breakdown from work that I've done involving trauma-informed mental health treatment with a high-risk teenager, meaning that teen was very um, high-risk for harming themselves or harming others, experiencing both suicidal ideation and homicidal ideation. That being said, there is a trigger warning for abuse, for, a viol- for violence, for severe mental health issues, for self-harm, so please feel free to skip this episode or to listen to another episode I have on here. Uh, feel free to take a break if you need to, pause it, really just do whatever you need for yourself. All right, now let's get started. For the purpose of confidentiality, my client's name will be Jess. Jess is 15 years old and experienced two separate incidents of severe child sexual abuse. She currently presents with severe post-traumatic stress disorder with psychosis and borderline personality disorder. Jess struggles with daily suicidal ideation, hallucinations, paranoia. When I say hallucinations, I mean both um, verbal and auditory, and basically every symptom of PTSD to the most severe extent. Her suicidal ideation and self-harm is persistent, and she has been hospitalized multiple times for suicide attempts and being unable to consent to safety. This is obviously a complex case with many layers, some of which will not be described, um, just for privacy reasons. When Jess was first referred to my agency, she had stopped going to her therapist because of a conflict that made her uncomfortable. I knew this was a very delicate situation. Now, if you don't already know this about me, during my undergrad time, while I was getting my BSW, my field placement was a child advocacy center. My primary role... Was as a family advocate for children and family survivors of child sexual abuse and trafficking, as we collaborated with law enforcement, the district attorney, and child protection during all stages of child abuse cases in both family and criminal court. During my time there, I also shadowed the in house trauma therapist and was trained all the time on trauma and trauma informed care. I applied and continue to apply a lot of these experiences and knowledge in working with Jess and in working with. Uh, all of my clients, Um, whether or not they have trauma, most of them do. During our intake session, I was already informed that something had happened with the last therapist, as I mentioned before, but I didn't know what it was. I first spoke with Jess's parents, who also didn't know the specifics of what happened. So basically, Jess kind of just told her parents something made her super uncomfortable and she didn't want to go back to that therapist again. Um, So they trusted their daughter enough to change providers. After speaking with them for a little bit of our intake session, I then talked with Jess for the remainder of the session. Given the information I had, I approached my questions and intake with her very delicately. I didn't want any wording or questions to trigger her to make her feel uncomfortable. Also, to know if I didn't say this already, Jess is not the real name here. Remember, that's also been changed for confidentiality. I always asked her permission to ask a more serious question, and I let her know that if she needed to take a break or to not answer a question, that was okay too. At the end of the session of our intake, we completed a safety plan together, and she thanked me for approaching the session in a way that I did. And that was something that really stuck with me, was when she thanked me, when she said, Thank you so much for talking to me in the way that you did. It really made me feel like you were listening to me and that I had and that I could make decisions. I think oftentimes, especially with teenagers, They're in that stage of just wanting to get more independence and more freedom in their life. And when they're also experiencing severe mental health issues, it can be very difficult for parents to still give them that freedom and independence because they're so worried about their safety or their mental health, which makes sense. It's a very complex balance to strike. But being able in our sessions to really empower her... And to make her feel like, yes, she is the boss. She knows what she's talking about. She knows her experiences. She knows her symptoms. She is the expert on her own experience. And I wanted to make sure that she understood that I was aware of that and understanding of that. During our time together in treatment, we maintained this empowerment self-determination approach, just to ensure that Jess was comfortable with the sessions and wasn't triggered. Um, I think I definitely at first, when we were first starting to work together, I was definitely walking on eggshells um, because I was so worried that something would happen where it would be like the previous therapist and maybe I said something and it would just trigger her and then she'd end up leaving and going to a different provider. And I know if she wants to get better, she wants to heal and get effective treatment. Obviously, you want to work with a provider that understands you and is understanding of your situation and is not harmful to you. Um, But I also know providers make mistakes sometimes, and it happens. We need to own up to them when that happens. Um, But we also want clients to not go back and forth from therapist to therapist, because how can you make any progress if you keep doing that? So, You know, we really tried to continue working on empowerment and self-determination to ensure that she was comfortable with the sessions and she wasn't triggered. And part of understanding and implementing trauma-informed care was understanding the impact of trauma and what that looks like specifically for Jess. And in doing so, creating a space where the client, particularly this client, felt heard, where she felt validated, where she felt safe. Now, the tenets of trauma-informed care often include safety, trustworthiness, transparency, peer support, collaboration, empowerment, and just understanding humanity and responsiveness. Trauma-informed care with Jess also meant checking in with her every single session. We would see each other twice a week to see if there was anything that she wanted to change about her therapy sessions or other areas that she wanted to talk about or different activities to do. With children and teens, trauma-informed care also means creating a safe environment for them, a safe and comfortable environment. Over teletherapy, I try to have a quiet room um, with some comfortable lighting so it's not too dark, like it's a cave, but it's like not too bright, um, and at the beginning of my therapy sessions, like I did today with this podcast, I also let them know, I give a little disclaimer that if they hear any noises, if they hear any, I don't even, interruptions or anything, everything is okay. It's just the street noise. Um, so I like to give that disclaimer, especially when my clients with PTSD, it can be triggered by any of those sounds. When I'm in the office and I do in-person sessions, you also want to make sure that that space feels safe and feels comfortable. I do have one wall in my office that's painted purple. I think another wall is like a, it's like a really light purple or a gray. Um, So there is some color in there. I have some pillows. I have blankets to add comfort. Shortly, I'll also be getting an essential oil diffuser because aromatherapy can be really powerful. For Jess, it was. She really identified some scents for her that really grounded her um, because it was really difficult to come up with coping skills and grounding skills for her because they would work for a time and then they'd just fizzle. So it was kind of like we had all these different coping skills on rotation. And if she had used it once, though, she wasn't going to use it again, even if it had been a while. Because she said it just didn't work for her. And so aromatherapy was really powerful because that was something that consistently worked for her. um, And really using her senses to help calm her and ground her. And so being able to also use that in therapy sessions and have that there. And it also just makes the space nice anyways, <laughs> you know. I mean, clients come from all walks of life, and sometimes after a client leaves the room, you might want to freshen things up anyways. Right now with COVID, I have to, if I do have in-person sessions, I have like a can of Lysol spray that I like spray down every single surface. I spray down the pillows. I have to spray down each individual UNO card if I did a play therapy session. It's like I have to, I have to do that. I do that for myself, but I also do that for the client to make sure everyone is staying safe and that they feel safe. Um, so like I said, uh, I also work with all ages and I think that's something important to note. but I do. So it's kind of difficult to incorporate, you know, working with like the youngest of children, like, like four or five years old, and then working with you know, 6-year-old men. <laughs> it's it can be difficult to create an office space that really touches all of those ages. I work I try to work mostly with children and teens. That's kind of my forte and my specialization, but I do enjoy working with adults too. And so in creating a safe office space for all ages, what I've been trying to do is just get some kind of like storage containers and things for the toys and activities that look more professional. So when everything is away, it looks nice and clean and professional. But when I do have sessions with children, you know, we just take a couple of things out and it's like, man, um, a circus exploded. It's colorful. It's fun. There's a lot of activities. And so I try to make sure that that happens for the kids that I work with and also the adults because, you know, kids are fun and they want to have like a colorful space to feel comfortable, but adults aren't necessarily as responsive to that kind of therapeutic environment. Uh, All of these elements go into trauma-informed care, all of those little details in direct practice. With Jess, another part was educating her you know, she often heard terminology or was told terminology by previous, clini- previous clinicians, but she wasn't really educated on what these words meant. So sometimes, you know, at first she often used the word hallucination, but she was describing a flashback. And for her, it was really different to t- difficult to tell the difference between a hallucination and a flashback. And that was actually really beneficial for our treatment to educate her on that because we got a better idea of what those triggers were. And we also were able to break down moments where maybe a a hallucination turned into a flashback or triggered a flashback to occur. And so that's also been something interesting in our work is just educating, you know, obviously it's important for professionals to understand trauma at all levels, no matter what you practice, it's just as important for our clients to understand what's going on with them, to understand how their nervous system is reacting how it's their body's normal response to trauma, that there's not anything wrong with them, that they're not broken, that this is their body's way of protecting them and adapting to a traumatic experience. And so it's kind of their nervous system and kind of the way their brain pathways formed after that experience. And in letting them know that and in educating them on those areas, not only does it empower them because they have a better idea of what's going on with their body and their mind, Because it can feel out of control sometimes. They can feel more secure in that. But now they also have words and terms to use to label what's happening. Before it can feel like, like I said, it's out of control and they have no idea and it's confusing and they think something's wrong with them. Now they can identify what's going on. They know what's going on and they can feel empowered in that way. And that can just continue to build on their confidence in their treatment and also on their self-determination outside of sessions. Outside of this case with Jess, um, a person where trauma-informed care has been such a positive change in our therapeutic relationship and rapport. That's been one of the biggest things that I've seen. And using trauma-informed care is, first of all, it's essential at all levels, not just direct practice, which we'll um, talk about in, in a second. But why it's so important is because it really validates your client's experience and it lets them know that you see them that you have empathy for them. And yes, you don't know, you can't possibly understand at all, but you hear them and you're validating what they've been through, but you're also empowering them and you're building them up to heal and to kind of take back control over what feels like has been taken from them. And so that's really the tenet of trauma-informed care is just having deep empathy and humanizing and giving power back to our clients. Trauma-informed care, like I said before, also goes beyond direct practice work. It needs to be impl- Im- implemented at the organizational level, level, at legislative level, into policies that determine agency rules and regulations, You know how we work with communities, how policies implemented at the macro-federal level. All of that should be trauma-informed care as well. You know, perhaps this means at the more organizational level, changing cancellation policies or fines or the number of missed sessions before a discharge. You know, I know my agency has a policy of, okay, if you miss three sessions, you're done. Like it's a discharge for you. Um, I've only done that with a few clients who it worked for them. But other clients that I know, especially with PTSD, where their initial symptoms are so intense, it's hard for them to come to sessions. I put that hard work in, in when they missed sessions of continuing to reach out with them. And then they ended up showing up and are some of the most consistent clients I have now. So sometimes definitely at the beginning stage too, you want to set that boundary for yourself as a professional. But it's also important for the client to know, sometimes you have to prove it to them that, they're, that you're there as a support, you know, and that you're not going away and that you are there to support them where they are. And when I've done that, I've really just used empowerment, you know, use strengths based language, really empower them so they can have that self-determination so they can begin to take action on their own. But then that shows them you understand their situation. You have empathy for what they're going through, but you're also there to help them keep moving and to come to therapy sessions and to make sure that they're healing in that way. And so when we talk about trauma-informed care, it can be really easy to only think of it on the micro level and direct practice as a social worker, as a therapist, but it is incredibly important to take trauma-informed care all the way to the top right? Because how can we create policies if we don't understand the, like, what these populations that we serve are going through? You know, if we understand trauma-informed care, we can have more empathy for individuals and perhaps create policies that make more sense for people's lived experiences. Well, that is all for today's podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or want to share your experience on the field on using trauma-informed care, please comment, share on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also find me on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook at Social Work Bub, and you can check out the Social Work Bubble Etsy shop where I provide worksheets and activities for social workers, therapists, other mental health professionals. I hope you're all staying safe, and I look forward to continuing to grow together in the wonderful field of social work.